It's football Sunday, which means I'm wearing Colts gear like I do every uh, football Sunday. And I'm hoping that one of these years I'll be able to wear Colts gear on a football Sunday where they're actually in the Super Bowl. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, but uh, hopefully that'll happen in the near future. And so I'm wearing a team jersey today, and we encourage people to wear their team gear uh, because it's Super Bowl Sunday. But today I want to use the jersey as an illustration. Because every Sunday, thousands of fans gather at stadiums, and many of them are wearing jerseys, but most of them have no business being out on the field with the rest of the players wearing jerseys. Because you can wear a jersey and identify with a team, but that doesn't mean that you're able to play for that team right? It's just a way that you identify that you root for that team, that you pull for that team. You're a fan of that team. I want to talk to you today about the fact that when we identify with Jesus, we're not just identifying as a fan. It's not a passive activity. It's something that we are to be engaged in. Now, I know that some people feel like they watch football and they're like, man, I could do that right? I, I could be out there on the field, right? I know at the very least on Monday, it sounds like a lot of people are convinced they could be a better coach than the people out there. They could have made better decisions. But Jesus tells us that being one of his disciples, that being one of his followers means that there should be this authentication of who we are. And towards the end of John chapter 13, you'll see that in verses 34 to 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says that the way we love will be our authentication. It will be a demonstration that we're followers of Jesus. And this is not passive, like putting a uniform or a jersey or team colors on is passive. We're wearing the jersey more like those who wear it and go out on a field and demonstrate that are active. We'll be known not by our identity, but rather we'll be known by our actions. It's an active participation. A few years ago, the Welburn Baptist Foundation commissioned a study here in our area, and they found that in our community, 86% of our, our neighbors identify as Christian. 86% of people identify as Christian. If 86% of people who identify as Christian were engaged and active in a local church, there wouldn't be room for all of the people. I know that we have a lot of churches in our area, but if 86% of the residents of our community were active in and engaged, there wouldn't be enough seats in all of the churches in our community. See, we live in a cultural moment where many people identify as a Christian, even though they're not currently active in their faith. And for that reason, I want us to see that Jesus says, that loving one another is more than something that we just identify as. Identifying as a Christian doesn't make you one any more than wearing this jersey makes me a Hall of Fame quarterback. 
It might show that I'm a fan, but it doesn't mean that this is who I am. And there's to be a difference for those of us who are believers. I want you to see what it is that Jesus said in those verses. He said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. By this we'll all know that you are my, what? Disciples. They'll know that you're my disciples. What's the difference between a Christian and a disciple? Well, originally, not much. Because when the term Christian was originally coined, it was a derogatory term. It was was a way that people who weren't Christians identified Christians and saying, look at those little Jesuses. Look at those Jesus Juniors. Look at those Jesusites, those Christites, those Christians, these little Christs. That's how we were identified because they were so similar to Jesus and the way that they acted. But today, this word has come to mean something completely different. Today, the word Christian doesn't necessarily mean that you look a lot like Jesus. It means that you hold a certain set of values, or you're from a certain area, or you have a certain set of political stances. A disciple, a disciple is one who is a student and wants to emulate their master, their teacher, in every aspect of their life. They want to not only know what the master knows, they want to do what the master does. They want to walk like the master walks. They want to be like him. In our culture, people know you're a Christian by how you identify yourself. And that seems to have less and less bearing on the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you act. Then our culture, the terms Christian and evangelical have hardly any meaning anymore. So here at our church, we often refer to becoming a disciple, not becoming a Christian, or becoming an apprentice of Jesus, because we want to communicate that our call is not to identify, wear the right colors or the right jersey, but rather to be like Him. In our area here, there's a common phrase, perhaps you've heard it. Uh, The phrase is practicing Catholic. And the phrase practicing Catholic is to make a distinction between Catholic and really Catholic, right? There are people who are Catholic because they grew up Catholic, or their family was Catholic, or their last name is a certain way, right? Or there's 12 kids in their family. Um, But a practicing Catholic is someone who, they go to Mass, and they go to confession, and they pray the rosary, and they take sacraments. They actually do the things that Catholics are to do. And there's become this difference in terms because there are so many people who are Catholic in name but are not practicing the practices of the Catholic Church. It's coming to the place where the same is true in the Christian Church. The same is true in the Baptist Church. There are Christians and then there are practicing Christians. There are Christians and then there are disciples. People who want to be like Jesus. And one of the ways that a distinction is made is that we love one another. Our lives are characterized by love. 
and our world, loving like Jesus loved, will demonstrate that you're not simply someone who's a fan of Jesus, but you're trying to be like him. You're trying to become like Jesus. We are called to be practicing disciples. People who are trying to become like Jesus. And so it makes sense here that Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. So how did Jesus love the disciples? Well, right here in this passage of Scripture, we have this beautiful example that we can follow. Look back at the beginning of John chapter 13. We'll start reading in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, to betray Jesus, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. And when Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. I want you to see that Jesus shows the disciples love. And I want you to see that he does it from a place of security. The opening of this chapter tells us that when all of this is happening, that Jesus knows that his hour is coming that he's about to be taken to the cross. He knows that he is from God and that he will return to God. He knows everything that is happening. And so what happens in this moment is not Jesus just kind of going with the flow. He's incredibly clear on what is at stake. Everything that's happening around him and he's making a choice to give the disciples a lesson through this act in this moment. You know that experience when you're driving and you're just like, suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, I don't remember the last 15 minutes of driving, right? Like I've just been off somewhere else, right? I've been daydreaming. I haven't really been paying attention. That's not Jesus in this moment. He's incredibly focused on everything that's happening. This is an intentional decision that he's making here. 
It isn't that he's filling time. He knows everything that's happening in this moment, and he chooses to show the disciples love. If you read John 13, 14, 15, 16, what you see is that this is the final moments that Jesus has with the disciples, and he's preparing them for them to be sent out and to do ministry without him there. Right now here at our church, we've experienced God's goodness and He's made a difference in people's lives. We've seen transformation. We've seen people growing in their faith. And we recognize that this is a time for us to be sent out for God's goodness that He's poured upon us here to to see it flow into our streets, into our city, into our community. We're trying to see exactly what happened in the disciples when Jesus resurrected and ascended happened here among us, that it spreads outward. But Jesus is preparing them for that moment by showing them this love. And he does this not to guilt them into service. He does this not hoping that by showing them love, they will show him love in return. He's not doing it out of a place of insecurity. He's doing it out of a place of great security. He knows exactly who he is. And this is important because oftentimes we show love to other people Not because we really love them, but because we hope that they love us. We show love to other people. We do things for them. We acts of service to them. We show them kindness. Not because we really love them, but because we hope that because we've done this for them, they'll turn around and do for us. That's called codependency. It's when you are desperately in need for love, so you go and do for others, hoping that you'll receive back in return. Jesus is not serving the disciples, hoping to receive in return from them. He doesn't love them, hoping that they'll love Him back. He loves them because He knows who He is. He knows His calling. He knows what He is about. I think you can get the best sense of this security when you see who it is that He is enabled to love here. What does this passage tell us? This passage tells us that Judas is about to betray Jesus. Judas is about to turn on Jesus and give him over to the people who will kill him. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows what's about to happen. And yet, he washes all of the disciples' feet, and that includes Judas. He washes the feet of the man who would turn on him. Later in this passage, Peter says, Jesus, I would never betray you. I would never forsake you. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to do it three times before the night's over. And every disciple here would forsake Jesus and run. These are people who would not be with him in his most dire moment. Jesus is loving them, not in hopes that he'll receive love in return. Jesus is loving them, know that they will not be able to reciprocate. That they will run when the going gets tough. Probably all of us, we have people in our lives that are easier to love than others, right? Probably all of us, there are people that if their name shows up on the caller ID, we take a deep breath before we answer, right? Dear Lord, help me, right? This afternoon, there could be somebody who called you and they they needed help and you would in a moment, just absolutely, I'll be there. Other people, they would call and they would ask for help and you'd be like, "Uh, we have something going on, don't we? Um, We have a thing. Jesus is showing love to the disciples who would flee and forsake him within the day. 
And Jesus is pouring into them knowing who they are, knowing that they're far from perfect. And see this, Jesus is not loving the disciples because of all the good they've done. He's not loving the disciples because they're nearly perfect or because they've come a long way. Jesus is not loving them because of who they are. Jesus is loving them because of who He is. He's loving them because He is good. Because He is perfect. Jesus loved them like this, not because they're great, not because they're good, but because He is good and He is great. You see, we don't love based on the worth of the recipients. We love because we have been recipients. We have experienced this love that God has poured into our lives. John would write elsewhere, we love because he first loved us. And we're able to have this kind of love because we're not dependent upon receiving it from one another, but because we receive it from Him. I've always gotten a kick out of people who say, I'm on a limited income. Um, people often say that, like, I can't get that, I, I'm on a limited income. Hey, me too. <laughs> Everybody's on a limited income. The richest man in the world, even he has a limit to his money. It's, his limit is much bigger than you or me, but there's still a limit, Right? Everyone's got a limit. What we see here in the beginning of this passage, Jesus knows who he is and whose he is. He knows that he's coming from the Father and to the Father he's going to return. Jesus has been experiencing the eternal, endless love of the Father for eternity. And so there is no limit to his love because he has been experiencing infinite love boundless love. And we're invited into this infinite love. We're invited into this unlimited love. And this, is, this matters because it's so much easier for us to help someone else when we're comfortable. Right? It's so much easier for us to give to someone else when we're flush with cash. But Imagine if instead of being flushed with cash, you just found out that you're going to owe on your taxes this year. Or that your car, it's going to cost more than your car is even worth to fix your car. And suddenly it's, it's a little bit harder to be generous because you don't have much yourself. Or if you're in pain, it's hard to comfort someone who's in pain. Right? I mean... You know, don't ask me to pass the salt right after I've stubbed my toe. I can't think about the salt. I can't think about something else. All I can think about is the pain I'm feeling. I've experienced that here as of late, as I've, I've been sick. And man, listen, I'm sick. All I can do is just focus on me right now. I just try to breathe. I got a man cold. It is serious. <laughs> my life is in danger, it seems. But when we step into the love that God has for us, there is no limit. It's infinite. It's unlimited. And so the love that the disciples are experiencing from Jesus, from this place of security, we have this love, this love that comes from being from the Father. And verse 3 says, And the Father had given all things to His hands. 
that he had come from God and he was going to God. What was the experience that Jesus had? Jesus knew that God had put everything in his hands. And we are invited into this endless, unlimited love. How can we have a love that overcomes every hardship? How can we have a love where we love even our enemies? By receiving the unlimited love of God into our own lives. A love that's secure. Jesus loved the disciples from a place of security. And Jesus loved the disciples through a practice of great humility. This passage says that Jesus loved, having loved his disciples, he loved them to the very end. That's a, that's a powerful phrase. Having loved his disciples, he loved them to the very end. Jesus loved them all the way through. And he demonstrates that love by doing the job of a servant. And not just the job of a servant, but the job of the lowest servant. If you were in a household and you were one of many servants, the job of washing a guest's feet was the job that the newest servant got. The servant with the least amount of seniority. The one at the lowest status. Yeah, we're both servants, but you're less status than me, so you're washing their feet. This is hard for us to grasp because when you go over to someone's house for a Super Bowl party tonight, most likely nobody's going to wash your feet before you come in. But maybe you'll take off your shoes, especially if you have to walk through some mud and they've got nice floors or nice carpet. Well, in Jesus' day, everybody walked everywhere and they shared the road with not cars on Goodyear tires, but animals left droppings everywhere. And so they walked in sandals in dirty, dusty, filthy roads in a hot climate. And so when they arrived, their feet were dirty and sweaty and smelly. And when they sat down to eat, they didn't sit at tables like you and I often sit out. They sit at tables that were lower to the ground. So those feet would be pretty close to everyone else. And so they would often have a basin and a towel there at the doorway where you could wash your feet before coming in for the meal. And if you were high class, you had a servant who washed your feet for you. If you were middle class, you most likely washed your own feet. If you were low class, you were washing the feet of those above you. As Jesus and his disciples gather for this meal, no one has taken the role of this servant to wash feet. And so Jesus sets aside his cloak and takes on a towel and wraps it around himself like a servant would. Oftentimes a servant, he would wash people's feet. He would have this towel that he would gird around himself. That way it was right there and handy as he bent down to wash the feet of the guests. And Jesus is taking off his mantle this cloak, this clothing, and he's putting on the servant's towel to wash the feet of the disciples. And what he's doing is just all backwards because they've already eaten, they've already had the meal, but now Jesus is doing this, and it's not because he wanted to make sure that everybody's feet were pristine for the food. He's doing this to show them that he is willing to take the role of servant, to do the job that nobody wants to do. 
So what's the job that nobody wants to do at your house? What's the chore that nobody likes to fulfill? Jesus says, I'll do the job no one wants. I'll do the task. A lot of parents giving side eyes at kids right now (laughs) about chores that haven't been done. Jesus says, I'll do it. And when he comes to Peter, Peter can't believe that this is happening. And Peter was the one in the group who would always be, he was not afraid to say what he was thinking, and he also had an incredible amount of love and respect for Jesus. And so he is offended that Jesus is the one washing everyone's feet, and he will not allow Jesus to wash his feet. He says, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Jesus uses this moment to remind Peter, Peter, you must be cleansed. Now, the idea here is not, Peter, you've got to have clean feet. Obviously, they've already had the meal together. They've already been sitting together. What is it that Jesus is saying? Jesus is telling Peter, listen, Peter, you must be cleansed if you're going to be a part of my family, a part of my kingdom, if you're going to be one of my disciples. And listen, it might be that you're here today and you say, well, you know what? My life is pretty good. And I think it's good that we should help other people and we should serve other people. But I'm good, Jesus. Go, go help the really messed up people because I'm okay. My feet don't stink. And Jesus says, listen, you must be cleansed or you have no part with me. And that's for all of us. All of us must be cleansed. The Bible tells us that our sin is a foul stench before God. That our brokenness, our imperfection, because God is so righteous and so holy, it is offensive to Him. We must be cleansed. But God doesn't simply say, listen, you're not good enough. No, He says, you must be cleansed. Let me cleanse you. Let me make it possible. Why can't we come in contact with God? Because God's righteousness and our sin can't coexist. But Jesus makes it possible for us to be cleansed. Jesus came, and what he's about to embark on after he has this meal with the disciples where he's arrested and he's tortured and he's crucified on the cross is him going through the process of taking the punishment for our sins so that we can be cleansed. And so the attitude that you should have this morning is not, I'm good. The attitude you should have is the same that we see in Peter after Jesus tells him, Peter, if you, if you're, you don't allow me to cleanse you, you have no part with me. And Peter says, well, don't miss a spot. Get my hands and my head as well. Miss, don't miss a spot. Get every part of me. Redeem every part of me. And when we recognize that there is sin in our lives that we need Jesus to cleanse us from, our response, our approach should be, God, here's all of me. Every, every part of me. There is no piece of me that I hold back. God, cleanse every part of me. And Jesus says, oh, you're clean every wet, but not all. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and Judas is there. 
And Judas has just had his feet washed. But he's not clean. And I want you to recognize that you can go through the practices. You can can attend church every Sunday. You can be baptized. You can have a position in the church. You can look more appropriate to be wearing the team jersey than anybody else and not actually be on the team because Judas didn't really give his heart. He was there at the Last Supper with Jesus and he wasn't clean. Friend, we get to wear the jersey and we get to live the life of Jesus not because we've done all of the right things, not because we've gone through all of the right steps, not because we're present for the right practices or the right rituals. We're able to wear the jersey and be on Team Jesus because He's made it possible. And this grace cannot be earned, but it will lead to some effort. It will lead to a different life. This grace is not the result of earning, but it will resort, result in some effort. Can you imagine what, what it would be like if watching the game tonight or watching the Super Bowl, just watching it, you got better at football? You got more in shape from just watching these guys on TV? Man, that would be incredible. I'd watch all the football I could. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. But when we come to Jesus and we experience His love and grace, it's not just something that we watch. It's something that we participate in. And we abide in His words, and we walk in His ways, and we do His works, and we become more and more like Him. And as we go into our community and we show people the love of God, we're doing so not because we're great, because we've got our act together, but because He loved us. And we're just becoming more like Him. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.